And we're on. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome out to day five of JS Remote Conf. Um, if you didn't catch it, the schedule did change for today uh, between the start of the conference and now. Um, so our first talk is going to be by Brandon Hayes, and he's going to be talking to us about uh, front-end JavaScript stuff and refactoring, and it's going to be super awesome. And then uh, we'll hear from Ben Lupton after that. So uh, I'm going to just toss it over to Brandon, and he can tell you all about what he's doing. I think his company's hiring, too, so if you're in Austin, be friends. Uh, yeah. Take it away, Brandon. All right. Hi. Yes. Um, welcome, everybody. Uh, I am going to present in full screen mode, which means that I will not be able to see the the chat stuff. But if you are in Austin, uh, follow me on the Twitters. I'll, put, I'll throw it during the presentation uh, and ping me. Uh, and I would love to grab lunch. Uh, whether we're, like whether we're at any point we're hiring or not, I love meeting Austin nerdy developer type people, especially uh, in uh, JavaScript stuff. But also even I don't know even outside of Austin, I like uh, if I go to conferences and stuff like that. Um, and how about San Antonio? I love San Antonio. I don't get there very often. I'll meet you at Schlitterbahn halfway in in, in uh, New Braunfels. Um, so, hi, yeah. Uh, so a lot of you probably show, showed up expecting a talk about Angular, and I am about to throw you into deep disappointment, if not depression. So I am going to actually talk about Ember, but the stuff that we're talking about is applicable to any framework. Uh, it just happens to be that Ember is my favorite, and I love working in it, and so we're going to use Ember as an example. Um, let me uh, get started here. Um, and uh, Jack, you'll have to let me know if people cannot see this. Uh, let me know if this is all right. Yeah, we can see it, or at least I can see it. And can you see me drinking my my delicious Coca-Cola? Mm-hmm. Mm. You just can't beat the real thing. So hi. Uh, yeah, the the talk is actually about refactoring toward Ember, and uh, my title. Uh, is not architect, even though I can make up any title I want because we work in software and everybody in software makes up their own title. Um, we're going to journey into some engineering, some real engineering, which here would be represented by some beautiful, inspiring bridges. If you're a software developer, it feels like you're building bridges or beautiful centuries-old castles and building walls to stand uh, a lifetime in Scotland or uh, crafting something with a hammer and really hot steel uh, in old-timey metalworker style. That's what we do, right? We just do this all on the cloud. So we're like architects and engineers and all this stuff, but we do it in the cloud. So I think we're ready for the cloud. So I am talking today about cloud engineering and cloudsmanship and cloud architecture. How, how are we going to enter this new world? So, all right, so you probably caught me... Um, not really knowing what I'm talking about. I don't really know what any of those things are. If you know what they are, uh, grab me afterwards and explain what it is the developers are actually supposed to be doing. Um, people say those things to sound smart and serious about programming, maybe, sometimes. Uh, I've seen good talks about real engineering, uh, and I've seen a lot of people use the term pretty loosely. Uh, I'm Brandon Hayes, by the way. I'm a cloud engineer uh, here at the front side. This is our beautiful, lovely space. Um, 
my I didn't put it on here actually. My my uh, Twitter handle is teviking t e h viking. Like I type up the Viking literally way, and it didn't get to ever change my Twitter name. So that's me. Uh, you can see that I am highly credentialed. Um, my mom says I'm cool. I'm friends with my with Five uh, Tanley, who's a super famous weird Twitter person. Uh, most of these are actually true. Um, so I'm actually not here to talk about any code ideals or ivory tower architectures. I've never really had much use for them because when I get out in the real world, um, I'm too busy being run over by bugs um, and stomped into the ground by failing tests to really worry too much about the ideal, beautiful, perfect architecture that's floating in, in the sky. So we're going to talk about where I actually live uh, in, in terms of code. So I want to talk to you about uh, the ball of mud architecture pattern, which is actually a pattern uh, that, that you can read about on the internet. But in order to do that, uh, we need to talk about city planning. Uh, most cities are not really designed for growth. And I used to live in, in Salt Lake City, uh, not too far from where Chuck is, and it's a pretty rare exception. You see that Salt Lake City, unlike most cities, handled its growth exceptionally well. So here's this, you know, they had a couple of thousand people show up in a valley and decide to make it look like this. And then it just, it, it has, from layout to their infrastructure, it seems to have avoided many of the problems that affect large cities. The problem is, in code land, we don't usually get to work like that. Most of our programs don't. Uh, my current Hunton is a lot more typical of American cities. The city layout and infrastructure was unprepared for the massive amount of growth. So it grew, it grew at a little faster, if not uh, close to the same rate of Salt Lake City, but it's completely overrun. This is literally what I look at when I drive home from here every day and, and just sit in it and just be sad. Um, I do get to listen to some good podcasts, uh, uh, Chuck's very much included. So the problem is we don't really even live here. Uh, that too, that's too good for most of the code that we inherit. We actually live here. Our code doesn't live in some ideal planned city. It's not even a sprawling metroplex. Uh, in code, we generally live in a shanty town. So this is a favela, which is a Brazilian sort of uh, shanty town. And in, in Brazil, it's kind of cool. It looks like a walkable city. It's sort of hikeable. But when you sort of zoom in, there are definitely problems that emerge. So a favela is a shanty town, essentially. It's a, it's a shanty town, like a temporary sheltered town that's been made permanent. And structures like this require very little skill to create and very few tools. So they pop up everywhere. And they're made of whatever can just be scrounged up and found. So there's very little training involved. Uh, and there's very little in the way of codes, like fire codes or whatever. And so these structures become difficult to maintain, to grow, to plan, and to protect. And so there's not a lot of police or fire presence in a shantytown. And there's crime issues. Um, and, and I don't want to make light of these problems. These are real problems that people have. Uh, but this is literally what happens when people try to take the uh, the shortest path to get to get shelter. Um, so I feel like we do a lot of that in programming. So forget about architecture. We're just trying to survive uh, a code shantytown. Uh, and you probably had code in the past that made you go crazy. And I apologize in advance for making you look at some of this code that I wrote, but I want you to feel my pain. So we're going to talk about this ball of mud pattern just briefly. Uh, the, the guy that invented it or wrote it first about it is named Brian Foote. And I really recommend you go research this. Uh, and, and he actually documents this pattern for, for like, I, I don't know a ton about the Gang of Four patterns, but I know the ball of mud pattern because I've seen it again and again and again. And you write some throwaway code, you build something temporary, then you start relying on it and adding to it. 
it's so easy to create. I would consider this to be the dominant pattern in both cities and software. So let's talk about how this actually happens. Um, like somebody comes up to you, this should be easy, it needs to happen this week. Uh, I, I think, uh, it, think about any time you've ever been asked to put a pro take a prototype and there's no time to rewrite it properly and you have to put the prototype in production. So there are such things as two-week features, but in my experience, they typically take six weeks once you uncover all of the hidden edge and edge cases. Uh, and we try to cram that into two weeks and then make sacrifices to get it shipped, uh, working too long of hours or cutting, uh, cutting anything except for scope, cutting quality, cutting testing, um, or we inherit code from less experienced developers. But mostly, shantytowns start as a quick prototype. So we're going to talk about this is extracted from a real project that I worked in that was too small. <laughs> it was too small to, to be architected or built in any certain way. Uh, and you, it, it, with just looking at it, it becomes too big. So this should be hopefully a pretty familiar story, and we're going to talk about digging out. So let's say we work on Gifindor. It's a social network for animated GIFs. Uh, the founder of it is a huge Harry Potter fan, a cosplayer. Uh, me, I'm more of a Hufflepuff. Not so much in Gryffindor, but that this, is, this isn't my website. This is theirs. So it's a vanilla server-side app. Just you use something like Ruby on Rails or Node. Uh, in this case, it's Rails. So one note on pronunciation. We're going to use this word a lot. Uh, I'm going to take a stand on this. I believe the GIF is pronounced like GitHub gist. So uh, I'm actually, I really do this in real life. I alternate between both just to see if I can make everybody mad. So you'll, you'll note that. Uh, anyway, with that out of the way, let's get back to work. Uh, we're going to sprinkle in a little interactivity with this app. So let's talk about this little sprinkling, and this little furry fun guy is enjoying the sprinkling of JavaScript, because sprinkles are fun. So your boss calls, and she says that your users want a better experience on your site, and they shouldn't have to go to the new page to submit a new animated GIF, but they do right now. They have to go all the way to a new page to type in a thing and click Submit. Let's look at our JavaScript here. Um, okay, it's sort of a barren wasteland. So undaunted at the, at the blank page syndrome, you march forward and you grab your jQuery tool set. And you make a little HTML form on the page and you use, uh, you use jQuery to show and hide it. And that's it, you're all done. And your boss calls back and she's like, awesome, that is so great, great job. But that submit button still requires a full page refresh to have the new animated GIF show up, and users are bugged about that, and it's irritating them. So could you maybe submit it via Ajax? That's exactly what Ajax is for, so let's do it. So we make an Ajax call, we post it, and then the server gets the response. Well, you can probably guess what's wrong with that. The new post doesn't show up on the page. You just add it to the list. There's no problem with that. Again, you just let's, let's you append something. All right. Okay, so it's a little bit of a problem. You're now duplicating DOM code from your app, actually from your, your HTML that's in your app, and duplicating it in the, in the JavaScript, but a little duplication never killed anybody. And you're agile, so you want to agile this code right in there until the whole app is all agile. Uh, we don't know what it means, but it sounds nice. So let's agile your code. Uh, by the way, this is a registered trademark of Cloud Engineering Inc., so if you want to use that, uh, you have to write a check of whoever that is. Uh, so this sprinkle, though, is actually starting to turn more into a rain shower. Uh, so, but think about this. Cheer up, Keanu. We actually shipped a feature. That's pretty cool. We did a thing. It shows up on the page. We can go home and move on with our lives. Uh, 
And then all of a sudden, your project manager, who is super happy to have the new feature, but he has a couple of ideas about this feature. Uh, he's done some user testing, and he's run into a couple things. Uh, users have asked for a cancel button to zero out and close the form. So, all right, well, let's do that. We'll dutifully implement that cancel button and zero out the form with jQuery, empty all the fields. Um, okay, uh, but users are actually hitting submit on empty and invalid forms. So we need to have some sort of client-side validation to make sure that what's in there is actually valid. But it shouldn't be too hard to tell if your post body uh, has a GIF in it, right? All right, well, not easy in terms of building the regular expression, but it is straightforward. Uh, but, and we will disable the submit button unless this is valid. And taken individually, each of these things sounds really easy, but when you put them together, this is starting to look more like a downpour of JS instead of a sprinkling. It's really coming down out there. So this is the part where things are starting to feel like they're getting a little out of hand and you don't know whether your application is really holding together. But check it out. Your CEO shows up. She comes in to congratulate you and ask for just a couple more enhancements. Uh, she, showed it, she showed it to her kids and they loved it, but they, they had a couple more things they want the social network to do. They want to add an inline preview for the image so that when you, when you enter in an animated GIF, you see it before you even hit post. And a character count like Twitter has that doesn't ding you for long animated GIF URLs. So let's make it work, that she just says, make it work like Twitter. I like how Twitter works, just make it work like that. So, all right, now we're doing this character count stuff. We're uh, uh, counting all of that stuff, extracting the part that has an animated GIF in it. Um, but it leads to more double checking around when you enable or disable that submit button. And these things are starting to con conflict with each other. And this is where you're starting to feel a lot of pain. Um, so you're caught between these two worlds, right? Uh, you want to be able to build code that you're proud of and that, that helps you sleep and uh, feels good and, you, and stands the test of time. But you also need to ship it. You want to ship. Your business needs you to move fast and break things. Get stuff done. GSD, craftsmanship, but ship it. Craftsmanship, but ship it. And that's why I say craftsmanship it. So it's a good thing that you are a cloud engineer and you can straddle these two words perfectly. There are no problems here. You just craftsmanship that code. So look at all this code we've craftsmanshiped. Look at this beautiful shape of this code. Sandy Metz actually gave a really great talk at, at RailsConf last year about code shape as an indicator of uh, code quality. So looking at the mix of uh, colors and shape and sizes of everything in your code, and when I squint at this, this code really does have a shape. And that shape is a sack of hot garbage. Like the kind of stuff you see if you ever hit Manhattan in summertime and it's sort of dripping a strange brown liquid and you give it a wide berth on the sidewalk. So here we are. We are at a total tsunami of entangled jQuery code to ship one feature that had one form field <laughs> to put one thing on a page. Uh, it, this is just what happens. You, you have an idea and you want to do something right and it sounds so small and you don't architect it because you, it's so small and then all of a sudden you're completely inundated. Um, so your CEO says, uh, wow, that's so great. Our users are so happy. If we just add like a like button or something and count the number of likes on this thing, I think we can close the book on this feature and we will all make a bajillion dollars. It's really important that we have this new feature. And at this point, I wanted to... Uh, write that feature in this jQuery style. Um, 
but there was so much double checking and interwoven states in this that the thought of actually having to touch the code made me want to quit writing this talk. So what do you do now? Uh, you could, uh, addressing the ball of mud actually has, the ball of mud pattern has uh, patterns for addressing it. One of them is to sweep it under the rug. Uh, one of them is to reconstruct it completely from scratch. Uh, one of them uh, is to run away and quit and never come back. And sometimes that is the right answer. And sometimes the right answer uh, is to do block by block renovation while keeping everything working. Um, and uh, each of these is worth an entire talk on its own, but we're gonna we're we're gonna talk about these options. So you could put it in a black box if you know you're never gonna touch this code again. And there is a lot of stuff where people have like hardcore math equations or whatever, and it's crazy entangled code. But you can put it in a black box and know you're never gonna need to touch this again, and that is totally okay. Um, a, a rewrite is always super tempting. You want to start over, grab React, grab your favorite framework, and and rewrite it completely from scratch and do and and uh, start everything all over. Uh, a refactor, block by block renovation, is really hard. Uh, and we're done running away, so quitting is out. Um, rewrite is really, rewrite sounds really tempting, but you always discover hidden business domain logic that you don't assume is there in the first place. So we decide that a refactor is going to be best uh, because it's too expensive to manage this as it exists. The behavior is already inconsistent. Users are starting to notice that sometimes when they click something, the button doesn't light up correctly. And you are starting to feel uh, a little weird about how when people the more people use this, the more calls and emails you start getting in bug reports. And most importantly, you toss and turn at night because you're thinking about those bug reports and, and they're frustrated users. And your gut is telling you to fix it and your gut is totally right. So you have two paths out of this. Uh, one of them is to refactor to uh, idiomatic JavaScript like plain vanilla objects and try to try to get into that jQuery and just untangle it into plain vanilla uh, plain vanilla objects and be the JavaScript hero that you know you are. Um, another one is to go ahead and lean on a framework. And uh, the, the point of a framework is to abstract away accessing the DOM and handling data. Uh, and they're both valid, but our goal here is to get out of managing the DOM as fast as possible. We do not want to be pushing pieces of the DOM uh, and string concatenating stuff and sliding into the DOM the way that we are right now. That's where most of the pain is coming from. So the framework is going to manage the DOM and we'll manage the data. So this is all we really need to do. We have these five steps, super easy. We're going to wrap it, we're going to test it, we're going to identify the models in it, we're going to identify the states in it, and then we're going to break it up. Um, uh, these five steps, whether or not you choose a framework, and no matter what framework you choose, these will be applicable. Um, it's nice to build up against a framework. I certainly prefer it. In this case, uh, we'll, we talk a lot on our blog, and you're welcome to check it out at frontside.io uh, about why I like Ember. Uh, but for this case, it's these three things. We have a model layer that's really solid for handling the data that maps really well to the data that exists on the server side. Uh, we have bindings to represent state and components to tie, all, to tie them together. Uh, so we're going to talk about step one, which is to wrap it. A lot of people think Ember is only good if you start from scratch with your app. And Ember kind of picks that line in their, in their marketing because they do such a good job at the holistic experience of building an application. But the reality is that's not necessarily true. Ember is fine. Uh, to drop individual components on a page. Uh, we periodically refactor apps toward Ember, and we're going to show you how to do that. But there's also more details on our blog. Uh, but in, in reality, it's pretty easy. 
the first thing we're going to do, though, we're going to come back to the style of refactoring that we're doing. It's pretty much framework agnostic. Uh, it's time for some justice. We're going to put that terrible code in code jail. And this is what code jail looks like. We wrap everything into a component, which is an enclosed, self-contained bit of DOM and JS. And this code jail is the init legacy code function on that component. So you have an init legacy code. Uh, I just picked the name. It has no significance. It just bootstraps the old code in the component. All it does is take the old stuff, put it inside of a shell, and, uh, and then boot it once the component gets inserted into the page. Uh, and then we'll take, extract the HTML from the, the server-side app, and we're going to put it into the handlebars template. So this will now be rendered in the framework. Ember is going to render that for us. But no structure of this, make a note, no structure actually changes. There's nothing dynamic about this. This is the exact same HTML. We're just giving it to our framework to render. Uh, then we sprinkle it in. And uh, a couple of things have happened since, uh, since where uh, we've updated this code on our blog. So check out, check out our blog if you want to see the specifics of how to do this in Ember. Um, but we really just used jQuery to stuff that component into the DOM. Uh, and it was pretty easy. It literally just boots up and works. So it does, nobody could possibly tell that anything has changed. And that's the idea. Uh, nothing has changed. It's not any better and it's not any worse. But we put it inside this component. And the component gives us some cool stuff. Uh, we can test it now. Our goal, the first test, is just to make sure this thing shows up. And it passes. All right, so I'm doing a hand wave here uh, over the JavaScript testing setup. Historically, this was very difficult. And I want to have a, a note on, on that. Uh, JavaScript and Ember testing in general has historically been a little bit of a wild west. And not the cool, like, sweet, like, wild horses in, and, you know, Marlboro Man style wild west, but more like this kind of wild west where you have to shoot buffalo and you can't haul enough deer and your, your, your wheel broke. And there's just... Uh, historically hasn't been a lot of accepted ha happy paths and some people like it that way and some people are fighting to keep it that way but if the Wild West is so awesome I think we'd still live there. The cool thing is it's really maturing rapidly. Uh, some cool stuff has happened recently with Ember CLI sort of prescribing uh, QUnit and paving a really easy path to write these tests and um, uh, we use Mocha these days and, and that's also pretty easy. I think Ember is actually sort of leading the way on showing how you, you can use idioms to help people get going on tests faster. So the good news is this is, this is starting to mature really fast, uh, and it's getting a lot better. So when I first gave this talk, I mostly was giving people this warning to let them know that they're basically in for like a week of hell during setup. And now that hell has turned into like uh, a couple of hours of setup, if that. So that's good news. All right, so testing Ajax, though, can feel kind of intimidating. Um, it's actually pretty simple. In this, uh, in this app, we're going to use a, a little uh, stub thing called IC Ajax. Uh, Ryan Florence wrote that. Uh, I, I like another library a lot called Pretender, uh, written by Trek Wacky. They're both great tools. Uh, these days, I'm, I use Pretender probably more than IC Ajax, but uh, IC Ajax comes with uh, Ember CLI. So here, we're going to add tests for each path through our experience. Here, we're showing that submit just shows a success message. So we're testing behavior, and, and this is a, a style of testing that we use to this day very thoroughly. It is all, we start with acceptance tests in JavaScript. We stub up the API endpoints, and we just make sure that when you do stuff in JavaScript on the DOM, that we get the right result. So you click the thing, a success message shows up, and we run it, and it passes. 
it doesn't take too much longer. Like, well, it felt like it felt like an eternity, but it was really, it was really like four or five hours to write all the tests for this. So we repeat that for each path, create an integration test or, a, or an acceptance test. Uh, it's super for, important because I don't know how you would do this and refactor with any confidence without them. I know there are other people who feel like they can do that, but I don't have the expertise to, to refactor without tests. Um, and at this point, you've tested this thing. You can go ahead, take a victory lap. You've earned it. Um, but this is just the start. So step three is to identify the models within the app. Your server MVC will often give you cues uh, as to where to start. So you're, you'll eventually diverge, you know, from the server. It won't be exact. Your models won't map one to one because there's some stuff that's more pertinent to the client and stuff on the server you don't care about. Uh, but it's a really good place to start to discover the business models associated with it. So we're we're going to do that. We're going to actually drive with the test now. Uh, we'll make a gift post model based on the server side model, and uh, we know that the gift posts will have uh, at least one job, and that is to extract a valid gif uh, from the post body. So you want the animated gif. Uh, to extract out of the post body and, uh, and, and create an attribute on the model called uh, parsed URL. And with no code, this fails. That's great. We're using test-driven development. Of course it fails. Uh, now we need to make the unit test pass by creating the model and add a computed property, uh, which I won't get into if you are familiar with Ember. It's, it's like 101 stuff. If you're not familiar with Ember, um, it's going to exist in ES6 anyway, um, so it's pretty cool. Uh, if you don't uh, if you don't know what a computer property is, it's just one of these. It's a function that actually acts like a property when you invoke it. Um, then we make the unit test pass by uh, creating it. Uh, that works. Everything's cool. So now we can start turning this static component into a dynamic content. So this we had all of this static HTML crystallized from the server side and stuffed into the page. But we're going to make it kind of dynamic. We're going to give it some jobs uh, because Handlebars is really powerful. So you click a, you click a link, uh, and instead of being just an A link that we prevent default on, uh, we're going to use Ember's Action Helper, stuff like that. Uh, the, the text area is going to have bindings where it's bound to the properties underneath it. That allows us to pull out a bunch of deprecated functionality out of the legacy code. Uh, and this actually gets the acceptance test passing again. And so we've t we've this wasn't the biggest refactor in the world, and this didn't take that long. Um, but it is the coolest feeling to have your test run green after a refactor like this, because we tested on the borders of our user experience. You click this thing, this thing shows up, and and so it doesn't matter the we're not testing the implementation, we're testing uh, what a user expects to see when they do stuff. So uh, I like letting a framework carry all of this stuff. This is what I mean about uh, about leaning on the framework. The framework took out. With no lines of code, the framework got rid of like 15 or 20 lines of code that was terrible. Um, so the models hold on to our data, they keep it up to date, and any changes in the DOM happen automatically. So we were doing a bunch of stuff manually to push things around in the DOM, but now we're letting this data flow. We're just changing data and letting it flow and represent itself out in the DOM. Um, and we're about to lean even harder into the framework because step four is identifying the states. So this is actually a pretty fun part. We're going to go back through the app and pick those states out. Um, so here's a blank state. Uh, the button is visible. So uh, we didn't do this identification because this stuff's emerged through the course of building it. But step two, we know the button goes away. The thing is in a ready to save state because it's valid. Uh, while the data is in flight, we want to disable the post button but not, get, not change anything else. Uh, on an error state, we want to leave the text intact and display a message. And, 
And then on success, we want to display a message and then hide the form. And then we want the whole thing to reset back to an empty form after a five second delay. And so we know the component starts in an initial state. Uh, and we'll bind that state to a class in the component's DOM. That's, this is going to simplify things so much. So we're going to use this class name bindings helper, but any, again, any framework will have something like this. Um, we'll use that later to let CSS manage what stuff gets shown and hide. Instead of having jQuery actually rip stuff in and out of the DOM, we're going to use CSS pretty heavily. So we want the DOM to be a representation of the state of the app. We're not going to touch it. So now instead of managing the DOM with jQuery, uh, we'll use buttons to fire actions. And those actions simply move the state around. So if you look at this, we were doing all this stuff where we were saying, push this into the DOM, pull this, and, and, and like a person like putting things away in, a, in a, some crazy cabinet. Instead, we're just going to flip a switch from one state to the next state to the next state. So we're just pushing the state around and letting everything fall out of that. Uh, it's kind of a lazy developer state machine, but it'll do for now. Uh, and then step four, we're done. Like we identified and implemented the states. That was it, just the one line to say, here are my states. Um, so step four is to break up the remaining code left in code jail. Uh, the states are now in model, in place, and tested, but there's a couple of ugly things left in here. So what is left in there? Let's look at that. The code jail is not empty, and we want the code jail to be empty and then delete it. So the legacy code still reaches outside the component to delete things in a wonky way. The reason it's still there is because it's actually reaching outside of itself uh, because it's not about the, the, the form. It's actually appending stuff somewhere else. So what do we do? Um, well, and then there's this. Uh, just look at this. I want to rub your nose in this, even though I'm the one that wrote it. What could possibly go wrong with this code? It looks legit, right? Uh, and inserting the post is pretty scary. It's cer certainly painful. Uh, it's painful to modify. It's painful uh, for the user because you, they get unexpected results periodically. Uh, but listing those posts is outside the component's job. So what can we do? Well. Guess what? You can have more than one component on a page at a time, and they can talk to each other. So we're going to sprinkle a second component in. Its job is just to manage the list of posts and handle deleting a post. And that's it. Uh, so we're going to take a little detour into Ember Data. Um, I really like Ember Data. It makes AJAX requests for you, and it maps to the model. Um, I know people who don't like Ember Data and write this stuff themselves, and it doesn't take that long to write your own implementation of something like this. Uh, but but the Ember data in this case actually bought me time. So uh, taking the model that we had written before, I just convert it to this and declare some properties, and that's it. It took like 15 or 20 minutes to do this total for me in real life. So And it buys us lots of good stuff. Um, uh, for now, so now I can actually, uh, at, in one place, uh, have uh, Ember data say, actually, I'm in test mode here. Uh, go talk to my fixture data instead of reaching all the way out to a real server. Um, and then uh, everything just works as written. The fixtures still work. Everything works. The, the, and the tests are still green. Uh, and that's pretty much it for the list component. So if you look at this, it lists some stuff. It has a, an attribute called gift post that's going to be a list. And it has a delete action that calls destroy record, which again, all it does, all that does is make a destroy call out to the server, destroy the thing, come back and say, if it's good, uh, we'll go ahead and tear that model down. Um, the second set of tests for this component pretty much follow the first. There should be this many of these things. When I delete one, um, it should not exist anymore. And that's it. Uh, we can use that to drive out the functionality. So we write the test first, and then we, we create the template uh, to replace the server-side markup. And it, as, as you, it's exactly the same thing we did the first time. It's just 
we have this cool each helper now uh, where we iterate over the ones that are in there and they'll be live bound. So then we just sprinkle that just like the first one. So the first we did this before with a different component. We say take that component, put it in the DOM, take this one in a different spot in the page and put that in the DOM. So these two components using what's cool about using Ember data is it creates this bucket or this pool of data underneath your app. And they're talking to each other using that shared pool of data. So changes to one thing will populate over on another. So if you have a count over here uh, and you make a change to one, you delete one, the count will decrement over here. There's no, there's no work to do. They just work. Um, and and uh, everything, everything that we do in one component will magically be uh, brought up in the other component. So they're totally separate, but they depend on that shared data set. So they look like, and, and they sit on the same page, and they look like they did when it was server rendered, but in reality, these are two completely separate things uh, that operate independent of each other, are tested separately from each other, they have very small jobs, um, and, and I'm finding building things out of components to be a really awesome, uh, a really awesome way of architecting apps anyway. Um, we just happen to be, instead of a big single page app, this is still a server rendered app that we're just stuffing these things into. And we trust that the data layer will do its job. Uh, from here, we'll use CSS animation. I won't belabor it. I hope people uh, use it and are happy with it. We're going to use CSS transitions instead of uh, old jQuery UI stuff. Uh, and you get lots of benefits for that. Uh, and, and this is my style of doing CSS animation when I know I'm doing statefully driven stuff is I will go ahead and use, I use SAS uh, or SCSS for stuff. Um, remember how we bound the class name to form state in that component earlier? We had that class name binding uh, form state. Uh, we get these classes for free automatically on that new post component. So this new post component will have a different class for each of these states and we can use that. Um, and I start by creating those placeholders to say, okay, here's what's gonna be slightly different about each of those. So for initial, um, you'll get different behaviors for these different different states. Um, so the CSS here actually kind of tells us a story. Notice that in an initial state, the shared dialog container is invisible. It's a height of zero picks and opacity of zero. And then uh, when it's not initial state, it, every other state, we want it to transition to opacity of one and a height of 160. So it should, uh, it should transition height and opacity, so it should fade in and grow. That's pretty cool. Like it's going to tell you the story, and it goes on like that. Um, this is probably one of those things, though, that that's better at demo uh, if your demo goes well. If it doesn't go well, then it's much worse to demo, right? Um, but let's see, let's see if we can make something work here. Uh, this is not the demo I want to do. This is a, a web page that my business partner built, and I want to brag about it. Uh, it's imal.com. Uh, it's on the Internet Archive, and it's clearly the most beautiful website in the universe. Uh, this is our this is our website, man. I really hope you guys can see this because these are each of these is a, is a treasure on its own. Um, so here's here's one we want to submit. Um, I'll just grab this URL because I don't have another URL handy. We're going to submit one here. So I paste that in and notice it shows a live preview. Um, I can post or cancel, and when I cancel, it shrinks down. I hope the frame rate is high enough to grab that. Uh, so when I post it, oh, it says I've already posted this image, so I can't do anything cool with it. So that's it. So you click cancel, it shrinks down, everything. All that crazy stuff we were doing, and all we're doing is pushing that state around, which is really, really 
much much nicer. Um, and I don't mean I don't mean that subjectively, I, I, like in terms of code beauty. I mean in terms of being able to sleep at night. It, it's obvious how it works. It's tested, um, and we can relax about the DOM a little bit. Uh, we don't necessarily need to test the framework anymore. So in fact, that's all the refactoring I really did in the test was I backed off of uh, testing the DOM so much because I could start testing more about the data and trust that the framework is doing its job. So you can focus on the application logic more. All right, so let's look back and see what we've done so far. Let's see if we can look at the business logic here and find it. Uh, do you guys see the business logic in here? Obviously, there's lots of business logic in here. Uh, Probably not. That's why I'm actually introducing a powerful algorithm that encodes your jQuery business logic in, or your business logic into jQuery. And I'm calling it the jQuery content system, JQCS. It scatters your business logic across hundreds of lines of jQuery code. So you can stop worrying about hackers stealing business logic from your front end JavaScript. I think it's the wave of the future. I think that's what cloud engineering is really all about. Uh, it's encrypted in 512-bit JQS. It's safe from hackers or even your own programmers for maintenance. Um, so uh, I, I just I want everybody to be able to use that. That's my gift to the world. Okay, so for us, really in real life, this is not going to be such a hot idea. Uh, we've moved that encrypted logic. We've sort of decrypted it and broke it down uh, to computed properties, states, and models. So let's look at the again at the before and the after. Uh, the business logic is actually front and center. We have named actions. We have named states. We have models that have business logic in them. So we've gone from this sack of hot garbage here to a tested, documented, and reliable implementation. It's certainly not perfect. It probably could use a little more polish, but it begs to be extended and reused. So the question is, where do we go from here? Um, well, what happens at, from this point, it's totally up to you. You could keep extending that component system. Um, in fact, we've done this before where we will take a component here, a component here, a component here, and sort of naturally you realize, wait a minute, there's no more application logic left these pages are rendering an index HTML that is popping all these components on the page. And from that point, you're really a couple, you're just basically a router away from moving to a single page application. And there are a lot of benefits that come with that. And um, we, we've had really good luck with that uh, in terms of moving across to a, a framework. All right, so we did all of this. Your brain is tired, you're cooked. Uh, why did we do any of this in the first place? Like, Oh yeah, wait a minute. I was about to quit my job because my jQuery code was such a flipping nightmare. Um, but the your boss is still asking you, hey, remember how you said this thing is impossible? Like I know you said you needed to refactor your code or whatever. Is that done? And can you do this thing? So let's go. Uh, let's go look at that. Um, but the reason that we do this is we we love our users. We want to give them nice stuff and we want to enjoy working in our code. Um, and really, we want to have fun. Uh, software development is fun. What we do is fun. It can be totally frustrating. I mean, I don't know any other industry that that both figuratively, figuratively and literally flips tables like we do. Uh, but it should not give you sweats at night. So let's try this fave feature against our new and improved code base, the one that I gave up on literally. Um, so once we know the API for that, it's actually a really small test to verify that this thing does what we want. Uh, we need a model. Hey, look, we know we have this pattern down. We have a model. It has a really small job. Uh, it's a, it basically tells me that a user likes a post. Um, and then we add the dynamic content to handlebars, and uh, we call favorites link to see how many there are. Uh, and we can toggle favorite on or off for it. And toggle literally creates or destroys a record. That's it. It's real, real simple code. 
uh, and it's tested. Let's see if uh, let's see if that works. Um, so let's look over here. Boop. Favorite. I love this one. It's exactly my life. Um, that one's pretty good. Hypnotoad. Oh man, I don't know if you guys will see this one, but I've already favorited it. Maybe I'll unfavorite it. Boom. Man, I hope you guys can see this. If not, uh, you'll have to go on. You'll have to go. Uh, I think I have a gist of all these up there. I'll share it after. Uh, they're just beautiful. All right, so back to work. Uh, that's pretty pretty much it. Uh, adding this functionality was actually really, really fun. It was so fun that adding this, I actually couldn't help but extend it further with filters. So you can filter uh, by, by how many favorites, whether something is popular. That stuff becomes incredibly easy to add and fun. Um, and we've changed our emotional relationship to the code base, which we don't really acknowledge that much, but it's really important. We should have a good emotional relationship with our code base, and it makes all the difference in the world. You either like your job or hate it. Um, so uh, I, I want to tell you guys, uh, so Chuck, Chuck and I go back. Um, I met him at my first conference ever um, four years ago or five years ago now. I think uh, 2010 probably, so almost five years ago. And uh, Chuck was one of the few people that I had ever met in my life uh, when I showed up at that conference. And I was so nervous. I was li like literally sick about going and seeing all those people. I love the idea of doing a virtual conference to kind of ease that transition a little bit. Um, and I want, I want you to know like uh, the community that happens at a conference, I hope, I hope the, the, that a community forms here as well. Uh, the, people, the people that I've met, the developers that I've met through uh, becoming a developer five years ago and uh, going to conferences and participating, uh, I really believe that everybody should uh, have and take the opportunity to speak at conferences. Um, and uh, I, I and, and want to thank Chuck very personally because he was one of the first people that helped encourage me as a developer uh, when I was just getting started. So it totally obviously makes me get all emotional. Um, so uh, say hi to me on Twitter. Um, oh, and uh, I'm pretty good at hugs, so if you are in Austin or if you ever get a chance to meet me at a conference, uh, come test that theory. Uh, and this is me. I'm Ted Viking. Uh, thank you guys very much. And enjoy your Coca-Colas. I feel like and I, I should have time for, Do I have any time for questions, Chuck? Uh, yeah, you've got about 10 minutes. Okay. Questions? I hope they're all about uh, drama in the in the very in the community. Oh yeah, that's my favorite. What's Chuck like in real life? He's terrible. <laughs> I smell Can better I over ten minutes of gifts. <laughs> Can you guys still see? Um, let's see if I've got more. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I, I saw it in a gif. <laughs> um, let's see if I've got any more. Oh man. This is this is for the unsavable jQuery code base. I'm happy to indulge the 10 minutes of gifts thing, by the way. More than happy. Have you had issues with management buying into refactoring? Um, 
So yes, management never wants to refactor. I am now in management. Do you know what I hear when I when people say refactoring? I hear that my developers want to screw around for three months. That's what I hear when I hear the word refactor. And so I empathize with the people that have a problem with it, but I also recognize uh, that it, that refactoring. Um, this was a small example, but at a, at a larger scale, it becomes refurbishment. Um, so uh, yes, how to sell refactoring to management. Um, uh, is, is a tough one. I've worked at places where it was not possible and they finally sold it to them by having 100% year-over-year dev turnover. Um, and uh, so I hope you work in a relatively high trust environment where, uh, the, where you understand that the word refactoring sounds like a bad word to them. And you say, this is not about, uh, this is not about reaching some architectural ideal. It's that I can't get across the next bridge or the bridge that comes after that safely um, because we've spent all of our technical uh, technical capital and debt uh, getting to where we are now. And I really believe very strongly that 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 refactoring is a 20% overhead on your time. Um, and we really try to build that into the projects that we do to say, if you're not spending 20% of your time refactoring um, uh, something when you touch it, uh, if you're spending much more than that, we, we may have a problem. And if you're spending less than that, you're going to have a problem. Um, I could be wrong about that, but that's my that's the instincts that I've that I've developed over the last couple years. I'm open to other people's experiences with that too. Okay, another question. I should put this into Q and A mode so people can just uh, ring in if they want to talk. But so I'll do that. Um, so you can just hit the uh, ask a question button. Uh, the uh, the other question in there is any recommendations for good fixtures or test data tools for JavaScript? Um, a lot of crying. Um, so uh, we mostly these days use Pretender, and it is a fantastic XHR thing, but it is entirely up to you in terms of how, how you want to structure your fixture data. Uh, there's a thing that I've seen from Brian Car Cartarella at Dockyard um, called Ember CLI VCR something something um, and there, so there are tools that basically will VCR style uh, record what's coming off the server and stuff it in, in J JSON into a fixtures directory. I have not successfully used one of them yet, but I desperately want them. So we're either going to write it or have somebody else write it, and I really hope somebody else does because that sounds hard. Um, but mostly, it's mostly about structuring them well. Um, look at Trek. Uh, T-R-E-K slash pretender on GitHub. And he he has the best fixture structure I've seen where you use, you, you put the fixtures in one place and it's one function that you can fetch a single one out of. It's very simple JavaScript code, uh, but in terms of structure, that's what we still use. Uh, you can fetch one or serialize all, and that's usually what you're doing against a REST interface. So, um, But if you're changing your API a lot or your, da your data changes a lot, large sets of fixtures can become extremely painful to maintain. So if you have a ton of API churn, fixtures are just going to be your worst enemy. And, and it will be cheaper for you to invent a, uh, a solution to record your fixtures off of your server, which I don't have. Sorry. All right. Were there any other questions? Or is that, is that are we good? I was fully expecting to totally get trolled on the Ember stuff because this was supposed to be an Angular talk. Um, we've talked before uh, about whether you can do this in Angular, and I'm curious to know from, from people here um, 
I'm curious to know from people here if they've done something like this, moving away from a jQuery spaghetti thing toward uh, other uh, other frameworks or uh, uh, re reorganizing the code in some way. I would imagine that's pretty much what Backbone was built for, right? Um, so one other thing I wanted to bring up briefly, if we've got a minute, um, is uh, Ember CLI. If, if people here, are, anybody here is doing Ruby on Rails, um, uh, there's a tool called Ember CLI Rails. If you're not using it, um, I highly encourage you to play with it because it is, it is, man, at the risk of sounding like a total jerk, it's kind of the rails of JavaScript. And people used to say that about Ember, but it wasn't true. Um, uh, it, it, uh, it gives you generators. It gen when you create a model, it writes the test for the model. And you, and you can build a relatively straightforward hello world type application the blog in 15 minutes type thing is possible in server-side apps now, or I mean in uh, single-page uh, native apps, native web apps, uh, because of tools like Ember CLI. And I really see Ember CLI pushing the community forward where you're going to see things like React and Angular 2 uh, start adopting these com uh, bespoke command line interfaces to actually build a full application. Um, it's a really cool experience when you use it. It's got features like if you have a Heroku server off on Mars somewhere, I don't know where AWS is hosted, I think, off the planet. Um, the, uh, it, you can add one switch, and it will proxy all your requests. It launches a, uh, an, an express server that you never see that proxies your request, so you can treat it like it's local. Really cool stuff. So check out Ember CLI, uh, kick the tires, um, and then get mad at your favorite framework for not having a tool that good, and then build it. Um, or join the Ember cult. Uh, that also works. I see dead people. Ah, <laughs> oh, Chuck, you're hilarious. So um, the question: If forces scaffolding doesn't net, I you were talking about Ember CLI Rails at that point. I don't know if that's. Um, it does. It does not. Uh, so, uh, it the cool thing about it. I was using I was using a framework uh, recently uh, in Node called uh, SalesJS, and if you're familiar with Rails and you're familiar with Node, it sounds like a happy blending of the two. Um, and it does some cool scaffolding of REST interfaces for you, which sounds really great in theory, um, but it, it's very difficult to override. Ember, Ember's story for it generates some stuff for you and then gives you really obvious ways to override the, the stuff that it generated. Um, and I couldn't figure that out in sales yet. Uh, maybe it exists uh, and it's just not documented or whatever. Ember is really thoroughly documented. You know exactly what you need to do to override uh, something that's built in, and uh, it it's really extensible in that way. Um, it, there there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of criticisms that could be rightly leveled at Ember uh, in terms of uh, you know it's not the most performance focused framework. I'd like to see that change in 2015. Um, it's uh, uh, Ember is addressing a lot of stuff in Ember 2.0 about um, how, how much mental overhead there was in saying, I have a controller and I have a view and the view touches the DOM and the controller doesn't. And components do away with that entirely because uh, it's not the right abstraction for the web, it turns out. Um, and so a lot of people who had experienced uh, painful experiences uh, and confusion uh, working in Ember previously, that's a valid concern that I think, I think the core team is working on, not me. Uh, I just like get tip those guys or whatever, like here, you fix it. I'll give you a thumbs up on your pull request. That's all I got for you.
<laughs> my own best friend. <laughs> You're um, reading through the whole chat log. Okay, yeah. The next question is, have you React in Ruby on Rails with JSX and CoffeeScript successfully? Um, say, so ask, ask that again. Something. What about React on Ruby on Rails? Uh, have you used React in Ruby on Rails with JSX and CoffeeScript? Uh, no, I can't. Um, I can't. I haven't used React very much, uh, and certainly not in uh, in CoffeeScript. I have a thing about CoffeeScript. I used to love it, and um, it broke my heart. And uh, I, I feel like there's an arc that every person who falls in love with CoffeeScript eventually it will break your heart. Um, and uh, it uh, with ES6 stuff transpilation now. What I loved about CoffeeScript was the fat arrow. Uh, uh, string interpolation, and so really those are the two big ones for me. So now I've got Fat Arrow and string templates in ES6, and um, and I have closing braces, so I know, like I don't I don't get trolled by my editor when something doesn't indent properly, because um, my editor I use Emacs and it can't know, and I and I use auto indent like uh, like crazy um, in my editor. I love uh, I love knowing I love being able for my code to know when stuff ends. So white space significance has kind of tormented me with CoffeeScript and, and some other idiosyncrasies of it. Um, working with ambiguous syntax has not been as fun. Um, so we should we should definitely, Chuck, you and I should get together and pair on a blink tag component if it hasn't already been written, and we'll release it as yeah, a definitely. module. <laughs> well, we'll write it as a CSS3 transform. <laughs> Um, all right. Was there anything else? I don't see um, any other. Oh, questions. so some people, some people in here are using sales. I wasn't. I was scrolled up a little bit. I didn't see the some of this stuff. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, the uh, if you've used sales successfully, ping me on Twitter because um, I have questions and. There's a couple of reasons where it sounds appealing to me for some of the stuff we're doing because we're building REST interfaces and we have to use Node and I really don't want to manually roll this in um, in Express. I really like the direction sales is headed in. It's just not real well documented yet. So anyway, thanks everybody. Hope you. Thank I, you, Brandon. I, I'm not. Um, I'm not being sponsored or, or anything by Coca-Cola, but it's just so delicious. Yeah, and you can't see everybody, so I'll I'll just tell you that you're getting a standing ovation. <laughs> we'll just assume. Anyway, uh, yeah, it was fun. It was really it was really fun. I love the idea of remote conference. Uh, so if you have any questions about Ember or have any um, that's sort of become our expertise, just because we do it all the time. Um, but I love everything. I've I've actually decided like a year and a half ago to fall in love with JavaScript, and I have. I love JavaScript. Um, I, I Ruby was my first language, and it's still my first love. Uh, but I love I love working in JavaScript every day. I love building user interfaces for people. Um, it's a really rewarding profession. Awesome. So we're lucky to get to do this. All right. Well, we have Ben up next. I don't see him in the attendee list, so I'm probably going to be emailing him and reaching out any way I can. I can. Um, if he doesn't come, then 
Um, I'm also going to reach out to our other alternates to make sure that uh, we get somebody in. And worst case scenario, you'll have to sit through a talk by me. But it won't be about JavaScript. It'll probably be about freelancing. So, yeah. Ooh, anyway, yeah. just anyway. just a fair heads up. Um, thank you all so much. All right, thank you, Brandon. I'm going to put it back in presenter mode for the next five minutes or so. Very cool. Thank and, you. Uh, and then we'll be back. Awesome.